Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland, Australia, and I'm co-host of this channel. Colonial Myanmar was teeming with animals, both wild and domesticated, yet few histories have devoted close attention to the importance of animals to the British colonial empire. Jonathan Sahar's new book, Colonising Animals, Interspecies Empire in Myanmar, does exactly this. According to Sahar, imperialism was an interspecies affair. Colonial empires would have been impossible without the human mobilisation and management of various animal species to first conquer and then to maintain their empire. These species included elephants, oxen, buffaloes, horses, crocodiles, snakes, rhinoceroses, tigers, leopards, tapirs, pariah dogs, house shrews, rats, fleas, mosquitoes, and many others. Saha brings together the emerging field of animal studies with the more established field of post-colonial studies to produce a new history of colonial Myanmar where the relationship between humans and animals is front and centre. In doing so, Saha highlights the importance of the lives of non-human animals in how we understand Southeast Asian history. Today, I'm joined by Jonathan Saha to discuss his original and innovative book. Jonathan is Associate Professor in South Asian History at Durham University. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. Thanks very much, Patrick. No, it's it's, um, great to be here. It's, It's always nice to chat about the book. Before we get on to your book, one of the things we always like to do is to ask authors how they became interested in their field of study. Can you perhaps tell us how you found yourself involved in the history of Myanmar? What what attracted you to this field? So I started the history of Myanmar whilst I was doing a master's program at the School of Oriental and African Studies in, in London. And what I'd principally been interested in prior to that was in the history of British imperialism on the South Asian subcontinent. And researching that, learning about that on my on my master's course, it did become apparent to me the extent to which Burma, or today Myanmar, was not really incorporated into that huge historiography on South Asia, even though it was you know, governed by the same imperial regime and within the same imperial administration. And that got me to, to, to think about exploring how those histories that I was so familiar with for, for India were, were playing out in, in similar or, or different ways in Myanmar. So that was the, the initial sort of thrust for it. Okay, can you give us a, a thumbnail sketch of what you're trying to do in this book? So you gave a wonderful uh, introduction to it already. So I guess what I can, I can do is... is say more precisely within within the broadest realm of trying to bring the history of animals to a study of colonial Myanmar I'm particularly interested in the relationships between colonized peoples and animals within that history and trying to both develop an approach that's sensitive to both the ways that colonized subordinated humans are marginalised in the archive, as well as how animals are marginalised in the archive. And to do that through a close engagement with the history of of Myanmar itself. 
slowly empirical changes that we can we can see within within that colony so to ground it in that place so that brought out i think two principal overarching arguments one that the emergence of capitalism and the commodification of animals shapes subaltern humans people's relationships and conceptualizations of animals and secondly that the contest between the colonial state and anti-colonial nationalists also refigured the meaning of, of animals for, for subaltern people. The book is really theoretically adventurous, I think, and one of the main theoretical influences you've already mentioned is animal studies. It's a, it's a relatively new field. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with it. Could you briefly tell us what animal studies is all about? Yeah, so animal studies is a wildly interdisciplinary area and it brings together people working on say anthropology or sociology literature but also some of the hard sciences to think about how animals can be understood what the relationship is between humans and animals but i guess in its broadest framing what does bringing animals into our studies do to change how we conduct our academic fields for the history of animals, that's involved being increasingly sensitive and aware, not just of the place of animals and the effect of animals in various human pasts, but the extent to which writing history that takes account of animals requires us to change our own concepts and methods. Another innovative thing you do in the book is to connect this new field of animal studies with the older field of post-colonial studies. What was your objective in bringing together these two fields in your study of colonial Myanmar? So in my reading around developing this project, it did strike me how frequently animal studies would borrow from some post-colonial approaches and try to apply them to animals. So, for instance, the absence of animals' voices in the archive was conceived of as a similar type of problem as that of subaltern humans, um, which had been dealt with by post-colonial theorists you know, for, for decades. And my objective was to try and push that a little bit further and bring it into sort of a, a mutual critique between the two fields. Because the types of presences and absences between subaltern humans and non-human animals are not the same. And to apply the same methodology to, to those creatures which were present but also absent in the archive in complex ways, as you would to humans who were being discriminated against or marginalised through colonial processes, was uh, ineffective, basically. And, and one of the things that the book tries to do is develop a methodology that is sensitive to the particularities to those two different groups as they appear in the archive, and also to find a path through studying them that brought them together, which is why I try and focus on colonised humans and, and animals and the relationship between the two. Beyond this theoretical framework, you, I think, engage with some very rich uh, source material on animals in colonial Myanmar. Can you tell us a little bit about, the historians always want to hear about the, uh, the, the sources, don't they? Yeah, it was an interesting experience. I sort of intuitively knew that there would be lots of material on this from my previous projects. Um, but because of the nature of the, the study, if you like, there is no 
natural start point or end point because there's all different sorts of creatures which I could have followed and it would involve very different types of archives. Um, and so I was partly guided by what I easily stumbled upon, which creatures were most abundantly represented in the archival materials. So creatures like um, oxen and elephants in particular, which were very present in the visual archive, in uh, sort of photographs and drawings and postcards from the period, um, but also in all government records and commercial records. And what I quickly began to realize was that animals were either overtly present in records um, wherever I looked or implicitly present in records wherever I looked. And I reflected on some of the materials which I'd previously used as a historian and how animals were implicitly there. For, for instance, I had worked on the history of uh, mental hospitals in colonial Myanmar previous to this project. And I went back over those records and found that, in fact, there was a large dairy herd held within the, at that time was the lunatic asylum in Rangoon, and animals were there as pets. They were being used as forms of treatment. And I had completely ignored their presence previously when I'd look at that, that particular archive. And so, yeah, their ubiquity is, is really striking. And in a sense, it wasn't there going hunting out different records as much as it was bringing a different sensitivity to the records which I knew existed. Yeah, look, I think there's a, for me as a reader, a sort of an aha moment when I, when I was reading, you you write somewhere along the lines that the animals, they're there, they're, they're already there, except we just weren't looking for them. And then, then when you start looking for them, they're everywhere. And I thought, ah, yes, that's, that's very interesting. <laughs> so you, you, you show, I think, really successfully that we can't properly understand colonial rule unless we understand the centrality of animals to colonial rule. How did, how did you come to this view? So I must admit, it's, it's not one that I've always held. This book, maybe unusually, started really as a, as a blog where I was just overwhelmed with teaching, trying to keep up writing and writing little bits about animals that I could find in colonial sources or in novels from the period was just a way of keeping my, just, just keeping my uh, brain going and keeping my writing skills going. And then it did slowly develop into something, well, there's actually me starting to think, well, there's actually something more fundamental here that it's so easy to find stuff on animals that they, they seem to be so present. And I, I think it started with something of a sort of thought experiment of just like, well, you couldn't have the same history without this ecology and you couldn't have these processes playing out without these particular creatures and that both colonizers and colonized are, are entangled with and entangled with in different ways. And, you know, from that, what may seem quite a, a banal point, I've had ups and downs in the project as the political history of Myanmar has sort of forced me to confront why I'm doing this history from the attacks on Rohingya in 2017 to the, the coup uh, last year, you know, trying to reassess what's important in my work. And, you know, what I, what I think I've, I've ended up at a point of is thinking that, no, actually looking at the animals isn't some sort of frivolous exercise that takes us away from looking at the important histories of, of humans. It actually enriches and helps us to understand those sometimes very traumatic histories in, in more thorough 
and embedded ways. And what I hope to have achieved in part through the book is give some sense of how animal history has helped us navigate some of those more difficult histories that we we have to confront as, as historians of Myanmar in particular, but I'm sure are pertinent to, to lots of other places in the world too. One of the impressions I think the reader gets from the book is that the colonial man, Myanmar, it's just full of animals, there are animals everywhere. And you, I think, very helpfully divide them into you know, different categories. So you've got the wild animals, you've got tame animals, you've got animals which are useful uh, in various ways to the colonial administration, animals that are, that are dangerous, as well as animals that the, the British regarded as, as pests, something they really had to get rid of. So there's this fascinating range of animals, and each species has a different story to it. Perhaps, you've already mentioned it, that perhaps the most important animal to the British was the elephant. And of course, you know, elephants had been important to Myanmar's rulers before the arrival of the British, but yeah, what role do they have in colonial Myanmar? So, yeah, absolutely. And I often find myself talking about elephants more than the other creatures. Now, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others, as Orwell once wrote. But the elephant, whilst it does have this longer history within uh, Myanmar being used in warfare, being used in religious ceremonies and within uh, the courtly cultures of, of Myanmar that, that preceded colonialism, there are really significant shifts that occur, particularly in the early 20th century. Um, and that's in the timber industry, principally. So once the easily accessible teak is, is used up um, by the by the 1890s, timber firms, and particularly European timber firms, start to rely on elephant labour to be able to access teak in, in the further flung parts of the Burmese jungle. And this sees an increase in working elephants from maybe around a thousand, several thousand in the start of the 20th century through to around 7,000 or 10,000 by around 1940, uh, depending on whether you include the calves or not. And this massive increase in number of working elephants that are kept in a form of semi-captivity during the colonial period tips the balance between working and wild elephants. And, and since that working population isn't reproduced through calves produced in the, in the captive herds, it's constantly replenishing itself by capturing more and more elephants from the wild, which has left us with this position in the post-colonial period right through to today, where the survival of the species within Myanmar, which has the second largest wild and captive elephant populations in Asia outside of India, which is obviously geographically much huger. The dependence, the survival of those creatures depends still on, on the timber industry, which is a, a tense situation because obviously they are, the timber industry is destroying the, the habitat that these elephants would otherwise surviving. One of the related themes that you develop in the book is the commoditization of animals during British rule. They become very important to the colonial economy. Can you tell us about this process of commoditization and, and why it's significant? So, yeah, I, I, it is one of the arguments which I, I had hoped to make from the book and for something for people to take away with. I think it's, I think it's significant in a, in a host of different ways. But the, the fundamental one is to, to, re, to recognize that commoditization of creatures is, a, is an infrastructural change. This is not just about certain creatures being brought into certain labor processes. It's a much more wide ranging set of changes that 
shift how people materially engage with animals, but also how they conceptually think of them. So creatures like elephants and oxen become highly valued and are commodities that have established markets for their purchase and for their breeding and for their capture and have a labor force that is there to attend to them. But there are other creatures that get commoditized sometimes in in relation to them uh, and in somewhat uh, more indirect ways. So for instance, crocodiles become effectively commoditized through a series of bounties that are placed on their heads to try and encourage people to eradicate them. And the the reason they become commodities is you need to keep the the carcass to show to the colonial state that you have killed this creature and then exchange that for money. And so the dead crocodile becomes representative of the value that the state is placing on people getting rid of crocodiles. And so the way that human relationships with crocodiles becomes mediated is increasingly structured by that market that the colonial state has put in place. Similarly, but on the opposite side of what the colonial state is trying to do, there are a whole host of creatures that are trying to be protected, like rhinoceros. And the way that the state does that is to try and incentivize people from not killing them by placing either fines for people killing them and allowing people to kill them when they purchase hunting licenses. So again, we're introducing, they are introducing a a market into this situation by making the experience of either seeing or shooting a rhino a commodity to purchase through, through a license. And so we can see this happening in all sorts of different ways, even when the animal is not being directly brought into any labor process. Another of the animals that was very important to the colonial economy was the oxen. I found this discussion really interesting. You write that the, uh, the cultivation of cattle is really, plays a really major role in, in actually transforming the ecological landscape of the Irrawaddy Delta from you know, wild mangroves to, I think you say, one of the world's largest rice-producing regions. So we see the animals are kind of part of a, of a much broader ecological change. Can you perhaps say something about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that transformation of, of the delta, which you know, by, by the 1930s is the largest exporter of rice in the world, um, is one that has been written about by, by historians previously um, in terms of you know, this as being something led by pioneer peasant cultivators that have migrated from, from the north of Myanmar. But it would be impossible without the four million or more oxen and in addition to that, a couple of million buffalo that move down there that provide the power for ploughing and that they provide the fertiliser for, for the fields. They provide communication networks. They, they travel across these, these regions and they are brought up in the, in the Delta. Most of them are bred in the northern mountainous regions of Myanmar and uh, are themselves migrants into this, into this region. And then as commodities, as very valuable commodities that peasants have to take out loans in order to to purchase or rent the loss of a 
uh, an oxen or of, of buffalo is a, is a catastrophe for a, for a cultivator um, and leads to their indebtedness and potentially therefore co- closure on their mortgages and then becoming landless or tenanted. So it's, uh, they're hugely important to the lives and livelihoods of, of peasants and essential to this huge ecological transformation. You also relate it to social tensions that build up during the colonial period. And I'm talking here, of course, this rising kind of Burmese hostility towards Indian cattle herders, which you know becomes a big theme in modern uh, Burmese history. Can you perhaps say something about about this hostility? Absolutely. And this is this is a history which you know started. I, I started thinking it was something quite minor, but but as I went through the project, it became quite a, a striking feature of intercommunal tensions in Myanmar. And so whilst you have these oxen, which are largely brought from the mountainous regions of Myanmar, as I, as I said, to work in the, in the fields as plough power, you also have migratory cattle brought over from the Indian subcontinent more proper, and um, that is there to supply milk. Now, pre-colonial Myanmar had almost no milk consumption or dairy production prior to colonialism, except small things that, that serviced the court. Um, the introduction of British rule brought obviously European migrants, but also Indian migrants that did consume milk on a more regular basis. And as a result, milk was brought over or milking herds were brought over to supply that need. And both the colonial state and Burmese cultivators saw this cattle as weaker, as being more likely to be diseased, as being under less control and stewardship because of the nature of Indian communities as they saw them. And this meant that there were concerns about those Indian cattle being present. And this went so far as believing that the Indian cattle breeding with Burmese cattle would produce a weaker form of oxen that would reduce the ploughing power of the stock in the colony. Now, in the 1920s and 30s, this fed into a much more, I guess, fraught set of concerns about Indian people themselves. And so attempts to control the migration of Indian people map onto the very moments when this concern over uh, Indian cattle is also being expressed. And some of the types of attempts of control which are put in place are the same as those for humans. Um, And so trying to impose inoculations for various types of diseases, trying to restrict their movement, trying to confine them to particular spaces. This stuff is is happening um, both humans and to Indian cattle uh, during this time period. And it may explain some of the reasons why you get violence between Burmese peasants in the Delta and Indian cattle herders that breaks out particularly during a big peasant rebellion in, in 1930 and 1931 in Myanmar. So this is one of those agrarian tensions and wider sort of intercommunal tensions that we know to be there in Myanmar, but we haven't seen this element of it, which, as you say, has been something which has reared its head again in the last decade with Buddhist extremists trying to mount campaigns against uh, Muslim slaughterhouses in the the Delta regions of, of Myanmar. Elephants and oxen, they're obviously animals that are useful to the British, but there's this whole range of animals that, that weren't useful 
Uh, you talked about the crocodiles and the snakes that were, you know, obviously dangerous to the cattle industry. Another really interesting discussion I found was the so-called pariah dogs. And it's that their history is so interesting. You write in the early 19th century, the colonial officials actually tended to look on them quite in quite a positive way because they're kind of scavengers. They kind of kept the, the, the streets reasonably clean from refuse and so on. But by the end of the 19th century, attitudes towards these street dogs uh, had changed. So what, what happened? I think it's, it's partly to do with the development of new colonial sanitation systems uh, and that, that shifts the, the view of them. And just an attempt to impose greater order on the on the urban landscape and this is intention as you say with local communities within the city itself that oppose these attempts to kill dogs in in large numbers but you see this playing out not just with dogs but with also with crows and where there are waves of attempts to try and kill the crows that involve uh, opposition from Hindu and Buddhist members of the municipality and attempts to recruit populations who they can induce to kill both dogs and crows without it causing tension within their own communities. So it's uh, it's definitely a colonial attempt to impose order, but it also exposes some of the, the limits to colonial power and the extent to which they relied upon communities that they could mobilize and induce into to doing this. And also the extent to which they feared opposition from religious groups around these types of things. But, but you're right. And in, you know, down to individual dogs, it can be a, a real point of, of tension because dogs were often beloved pets. But then in a moment where they could be suspected of rabies, they become a danger and then something, a creature that would need to be, to be killed almost straight away. So those... Those tensions around dogs, I think, are particularly pronounced because of their close emotional connections to, to human populations. Yeah, I found that section where you talk about animals as pets, and it, it's uh, yeah, dogs, obviously, uh, but there are these other animals that the British uh, uh, kept as pets, which I wasn't aware of, you know, wild animals. Um, I think they're tapirs and even a, a bear, I think. And the it's, it's kind of like uh, there, there's some kind of obviously an emotional connection that's they had for these colonial officials. It reminded me of some of, you know, Orwell's writing or something. There's the sense of these colonial officials, they're very lonely and maybe unloved and they need some kind of, you know, emotional uh, pick-me-up and pets seem to kind of play that, have that function. Absolutely. And what I what I find interesting is it's not just the pets that have that function, but some of the pests can have that function. So the uh, sort of putting up with a noisy lizard or dealing with, the fleas which might come into your house are also part of sort of developing that sense of overcoming a slightly adverse environment, but also displaying a familiarity with it. And to an extent, we can see this also in some of the, uh, the Burmese writings of, of the time, particularly during the Japanese occupation, where beloved pet dogs suddenly become a bit more menacing when food scarce, scarcity becomes a real problem and when they're having to run in to the air raid shelters and they come out and find that their pet dogs have eaten the food which they'd lovingly prepared and left out for them to eat. So those things also come through quite quite strongly. One of the favourite pastimes of colonial officials everywhere seem to be hunting. And uh, you see this, you know, all over the world, not just Myanmar, but 
lot, lot of wild animals in Myanmar, of course. You provide some great vignettes about the hunting prowess of some of these officials. Can you tell us about the place of hunting in uh, colonial life in British Myanmar? Yeah, I mean, so it was, Myanmar was important for hunting, not, not just for those official stations in hunting. It's probably worth uh, noting as well. This was, this was a place you would go to to try and find particular species, which you, you wouldn't be able to get in, uh, in India itself. And it was a, a pastime that was indulged in throughout the colonial period, even when sensibilities started to, to shift decisively against us. And where this comes into to the book is principally around thinking about the extent to which this seemed to happen in a in a way that was not as controlled as as it often is represented as. So there would be restrictions on killing creatures, particularly like elephants, that would come into force by the late 19th century, but particularly into the 20th century. But the application of those rules to people coming into the country and indulging in a bit of sport, as they would call it, was not consistent. And it would seem that people were, were still able to, to hunt without those passes and that officials would note and talk about individuals, European, but also uh, some Indian hunters who, who did it without getting the permissions, but also without any punishment following on from that. And so the attempts to put in restrictions and controls on hunting were often dead letters and didn't go much beyond the, the paper that the legislation was written down on. Another theme you develop in the, the latter part of the book is the, so the, the beginnings of, an, of a conservation movement. And you write that you know, with the expansion of agriculture and hunting and you know, the killing of various animal species, this has a dramatic effect on the population of wild animals in Myanmar. And for example, already in the early 20th century, there were fears that the rhinoceros could disappear from Myanmar. And I believe actually that sadly, recently, they have become indeed extinct in Southeast Asia, but this is already, they're already aware of this in uh, the colonial period. Can you tell us a little bit about the development of animal conservation in colonial Myanmar? It's an, it's an interesting story in some ways, and a story perhaps of a lack of a sustained movement really uh, developing or a lack of a sustained movement that the colonial state could register really really being present and the the rhinoceros makes a really i think sad but compelling example of this because in the mid 19th century natural historians operating in myanmar they just refer to it in very vague numbers because the abundance seems to be so high there just seems to be so many of them and then by the early 20th century, particularly in the Delta regions that have been transformed from mangrove forests into, into paddy fields, you know, they're, they're now reporting that there are no wild animals in those, in those parts that they are, that they are coming across, or very, very few. Um, and so rhinos by this point have, have disappeared from those areas where they were previously uh, living. And in the small sanctuaries that are set up in the upland areas where commercial timber industries aren't allowed to enter or, or mining or other extractive industries are, are kept out, the, the sighting of, of rhinos is really infrequent. And so we've gone in a period of just 50 to 80 years, there being so many that you couldn't put a number on them, to the numbers being picked out in, in single digits for some species of rhino and, and double digits for others, but it's not high numbers. And there is some voices opposing this from a sort of uh, imperial standpoint, but 
there were also, you know, wider resistance against forest use within the colonial period, which may not have been an explicitly ecological standpoint that ethnic minority groups in the region, in regions such as Kachinlands and in Karen regions, you know, they were fighting against some of the timber industry and uh, some of the extractive industries in those regions. Um, and like I say, they might be environmentalists as we would understand them, but the types of forest use which they were trying to preserve and retain would have been more favourable to the ongoing survival of certain species. A really interesting part of the book is your discussion of the British view that the Burmese were comparatively more tolerant and sympathetic to animals than, than the British were. How did the British understand Burmese relationships uh, with animals? Was it accurate? Did their perceptions of uh, the influence of Buddhism have anything to do with it? So, yeah, and it was partly in contrast to themselves that they saw the Buddhist, as Buddhist Burmese being overly sympathetic with creatures, but it was also in contrast to what how they represented Indian populations as being brutal and unkind to, to creatures. And the, the truth behind this, I think it is hard to hard to unpick. Certainly there were movements within sort of reformist Buddhist monks but also lay activists that were trying to encourage Burmese people to be uh, more ethical towards creatures, to not eat beef and not to commit acts of harm against, against animals. And so there is a desire to become more Buddhist in their relationships with, with animals that some anti-colonial thinkers and activists are trying to propagate amongst the Burmese population. But that in itself suggests a gap between Buddhist practice and the realities on the ground that the colonial writers were not really acknowledging. Uh, for them, these were Buddhist populations. They were so sympathetic to animals that they would breastfeed orphaned mammals, for instance. And, and all that rhetoric was there to try and, as you suggest, prop up differentiation between colonial rulers that had higher sensibilities and overly sympathetic Burmese Buddhists who didn't have a proper sense of decorum or division between humans and animals. On the other hand, you write about how a number of Burmese intellectuals, they kind of, they're, they're writing about natural history. They're reading kind of the natural history journals and publications and, and evolutionary theory. And they're kind of developing their own sort of ideas on, on this, this new area of scholarship. Can you tell us a little bit about these, these guys? Yeah, so this is the stuff, some of the stuff which I find most most interesting. And it's also the stuff which is most overlooked by previous histories of, uh, of animals. And one of the figures I look at is author, poet, important nationalist thinker, um, who needs no introduction for people who are familiar with Myanmar, but he's called Takin Kodong Mine. And he uh, writes these books that are in the form of traditional Buddhist religious commentaries, but aren't that at all. They are sometimes satirical and funny writings that poke fun at this nature of the colonial regime. Sometimes they are quite earnest poems about the plight of, of Burmese peasants or about the royal past in Myanmar. And several of them are about animals or take an animal as a theme. So there's a dog, tika, religious commentary, a monkey one and a peacock one. And I look particularly at the monkey one in, in the book. And you're right, in, in that text, he engages with natural historical writings published in Europe and, and plays with them in, in interesting ways, showing a deeper understanding of evolutionary theory at times 
and then making comments about how a particular type of monkey looks like an Englishman because of its haircut and sideburns, and inverting some of the uh, colonial rhetoric about the proximity of Burmese people to, to earlier stages in evolution. So I, I think this is something which the book, I think, sadly only scratches the surface of, but there, there is so much fascinating stuff to be explored. I think, in anti-colonial writings and how they not just use animals symbolically, but demonstrate a really creative engagement with global learning uh, around animals and bring that learning into new sets of contexts and vernacularize them in two senses of word, not just bringing that learning into Burmese, but into Burmese idioms. Absolutely. It's it's just such a, a fascinating and you would think you know, productive area to be researching in. So that this brings us to, to a traditional question we ask our interviewees. Are you working on a new project that might be related to this one? And can you give us an idea about what that project is about? So, yeah, I'm doing a couple of things which are related to this. One is working particularly on the, the Sayasan Rebellion, which I briefly mentioned earlier, which is a peasant rebellion of 1930-31. And looking more closely at the uh, massacres of Indian cattle herders in that in that rebellion, and trying to understand precisely what's happening there, because I I look at it a bit in the book, but I feel a bit dissatisfied that I've not really done justice to that those those particularly epi- particular episodes. So that's one thing which I'm doing, and the other thing which I'm looking at, which is very early stages, is trying to to write a history that centers more on the experiences and subjective worlds of animals themselves and also thinking about what animals do as as ecosystem agents as actors within webs of interconnection between different species to give you something a bit more concrete on that if we take elephants and we don't just look at the elephants themselves but think about what an elephant does from its dung to its eating habits that create habitats for other creatures that otherwise actually don't get recorded in the archive. We are able to trace the wider impacts of British colonialism by, by thinking about not just the elephant, but the impact of the conscription of elephant into the labor force on sloth bears that live alongside and depend upon elephants for various food types, for deer that use elephants to locate salt licks, to dung beetles that, that live on and circulate the seeds and others that elephants' dung produces. We have all these sort of cascade and knock-on effects. So trying to take animals even more seriously, I think, than this book does by thinking them of them as creatures that had their own subjective experiences and creatures that had knock-on effects on a wider range of wildlife. Sounds like an exciting project. Can't wait to see what you come up with. Uh, Jonathan Sahal, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Colonising Animals, Interspecies Empire in Myanmar, published in 2021 by Cambridge University Press. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to some other podcasts about books that deal with the history of animals in Southeast Asia, such as Timothy Barnard's Imperial Creatures, Humans and Other Animals in Colonial Singapore, 1819 to 1942, or Robert Cribb, Helen Gilbert and Helen Tiffin's Wild Man of Borneo, A Cultural History of the Orangutan, 
published by University of Hawaii Press in 2014. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. Thank you.